Oh, well, Jordan, thank you for doing this. No, thanks, Rick. Um, I guess I just wanted to start by uh, saying thank you for one of my favorite, like you were, I think you were the inspiration behind one of my favorite tweets that I did, which was um, comic books are, well, poetry is comic books for smart people. <laughs> or dopes. Smart people in air quotes. Fair enough. I like it. Yeah. And your book kind of has that, that vibe to it because of the like uh, section dividers. Yeah, I, I have never really understood where those came from, but they seem to be a convention, like a secret handshake that you can use to get into the Cool Kid Poetry Club. Um, I noticed that all from the 60s or 70s, all poetry books seem to be divided into three parts, like Rome or something. So, uh, but th there is a reason this book, uh, Shell Game, is divided into three parts, but I won't say what it is. Well, that's, <laughs> that's fair enough. But, um, but um, it is weird that the poets uh, go for the three-part structure because that's a, a traditional narrative structure. And I think a, a couple times in the book, you're, you come out pretty strongly against narratives. Yeah, I, I, my uh, training in poetry is uh, in the New York school tradition, which is pretty squarely... Um, pictorial and linguistic and not narrative, but, you know, narrative always finds a way in. Um, the, the New York poets were closely associated with the New York school of, of painters, um, the abstract expressionists, and there was a, a wish to do something with language that would... Um, radically break with tradition but as it turned out almost every poet involved was also not so secretly uh completely in love with the tradition and trying to carry it on in in whatever way they could uh but i narrative um so the the three parts i said i wouldn't tell but uh you know the the classic um street scam the shell game or three card monty there are three, um, the, the, the trick is to keep your eye on the, uh, the cup that has the ball under it or the card that has the, um, that, that's the card that you're supposed to pick in order to win the bet. And dividing it up into three parts, dividing a book of poems into three parts has always seemed to me to be a kind of scam because the, the narrative, um, the narrative of a book of poems uh, is usually fairly, I mean, there aren't that many changes you can play on it. Yeats starts a, a book of poem with a, with a dead person and, and, and then you, you have a number of books that come after it that are told from the point of view of a ghost, but there aren't that many things that you can do, it seemed to me, um, with the three-part structure. So I tried to do something that was completely, uh, impossibly uh, different. Yeah, and I think you you talk a lot about, you talk a lot in this book about, I think, kind of the shell game of poetry. Like, um, the title poem of the book ends with you saying just baffle, 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 disclose, baffle, 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 disclose, etc. Well, we spend a lot of time with it, and we know everything that it, tries to do to get away with something and when you care about a country or an art form or a person um, you can't really let them get away with bullshit so uh, to bring poetry back I was reading Lynn Higinian this week and I, I recommend reading Lynn Higinian every few months if, if it's possible and she has enough books that you could uh, read a different book every month for I think a couple of years but she opposes clarity and candor um, and I, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way but I, th I think um, and she, she sees candor as a kind of power grab move that um, that dispels clarity and I had always thought of candor as a kind of clarity she's She's against 
that, but I, I think that's the same kind of opposition that I uh, wrestling with in, in that in shell game. There are a lot of poets who I think make a gesture of disclosing personal data or disclosing what it is they're talking about or disclosing what it is they care about, and then suddenly they've erased the the evidence, and you're back wondering what exactly has happened. And I guess I just wanted to point toward that and also engage in it. Yeah, that's that's really uh, like well said. And I think what's interesting about that too is like in the age of Instagram poetry, a lot of a lot of poets will kind of gesture towards being like really um, candid about themselves and they'll, they'll act like they're revealing something. But in the end, they, it always kind of um, maybe not, not for every poet, but one typical move is to kind of um, sidestep that, that personal, um, that personal moment and try and move towards like a universal one in a kind of, you know, what ends up being just a, you know, a kind of baffling phrase that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Let's talk about Instagram poetry. How do you like it? I mean, it, I mean, to me, the label is kind of just um, too broad perhaps now because there's so much stuff going on, but I, I do, I think it's at its worst. It's, I think I've said this before, but at its worst, it's like the equivalent of, like some of that stuff you see on people's in people's houses that's just like home is where the heart is kind of stuff but on the other hand you know you can i think it's possible to experiment within it but the problem i think too with instagram poetry is that it is happening on instagram and instagram now is very algorithmic and that that presents a lot of challenges to trying to break through i forget who i was talking with about this i think it might have been james but uh, the, like thinking of the algorithm as a, a universalizing thing, because you know if you want to appeal to as many people as possible, you go, you go for the universal. But I don't even understand how the algorithm. I, I I look at Instagram a little bit, and I don't I don't see things that are outside of my feed. I, the explore tab it would never occur to me to look at. Do people really use that a lot? I don't really think so, and I think that's probably the problem um, with with that with that whole platform i mean i, I it's uh well what's the experience of being on instagram um i guess it really depends on who you follow but mostly for me it's people's vacations and their breads and their families and uh random objects that they see on the street i know i know personally one or two photographers who photograph all of those things and then are also having exhibitions of their, their photographs. And it, it, the great democratizing, leveling playing field, um, I, don't, I, I don't really experience it that way. No, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think, oh, thank you. I don't think it is. I think maybe during the chronological timeline era of Instagram, it might have been that, but I think the algorithm now is probably more feeding and doing feedback loops for people with established audiences, essentially. But I did want to talk mm. too about, um, there's a lot, uh, both bread and family come up a lot in, the, in your book, and I was wondering, um, and I guess the, having it mediated through Instagram like that is a good context to bring it up, because it does seem like you always talk about it in a way that in the in your poems in a way that's aware of it being mediated by the poem uh bread is a, a big deal uh in labor history um uh, and bread is also just a great substance that i happen not to be allergic to yet um and i, I like making although i've been living in brooklyn for three years and my oven is never ever going to make an adequate loaf of bread so until i leave this apartment i I, it's just a memory, um, but no, th there are these there are these um, tropes that keep coming back in poetry because you can't keep them away. I think the way you can't keep yeast from growing on things, and you can choose to talk about the sun and blood and soil, or you can choose to talk about bread and love and and roses. And I I prefer the ones that the sympathetic labor history have chosen over time and not the ones that uh, 
people who want to exterminate people who disagree with them uh, have chosen. Yeah, and I think another thing, too, that comes up a lot in your work is just work itself. You talk a lot about work, and I think one of the poems that I, I had tweeted, and I seen someone else tweet, was the Sea Otters poem, where th that ends, again, with something related to work. So the, the experience, you mentioned Flarp, the experience of, um, of getting a bunch of poets together to make work that used the material on the internet uh, to try and pry the rock up from the soil and see what was, was going on underneath it. Uh, the Flarf poets worked together on a, uh, a listserv back when we all could get out on the open internet at our jobs before the great firewalling of the internet and well before the advent of smartphones. There was this time where we could all communicate and sort of keep our spirits um, fresh by contacting each other and engaging in very, very mild time theft by composing poems, by collaborating on poems together. Um, and that was a great moment that ended very abruptly with the rise of the blogs, which were also pretty useful for poets to communicate with each other. Uh, but then the, you know, the, the, I, I don't want to sound like I'm putting down BuzzFeed and the all and Gawker, because Gawker did amazing, amazing, amazing anti-boss uh, anti work. Um, and the all, in its own way, also did pretty good pro-labor work. Um, BuzzFeed is another story altogether. But the, the, the suddenly, the, um, the mood, the tenor, what survived on the internet was not group collaboration and really uh, keeping each other's spirits alive, but seeing extremely adorable videos that it's really impossible to compete with. Oh, right. That makes, that makes a lot. That really puts that, that poem, I think, in a bit of a different light. And I guess that I wanted to ask too, do you still, are you still engaging in time theft to write your poems? <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> it's just not... Uh, it, Part of it is uh, I'm no longer in my 20s. Uh, I'm in my 40s, almost in my 50s. And after a certain point, there's just so much to do. The idea of um, clearing your mind enough to write a poem um, while you're on the clock, it just... I know that there are stories that Wallace Stevens would close the door of his office and would dictate to his secretary... Uh, who would then type up his poems. And that seems very magical to me. Uh, when I was a kid, when I was about 12, I realized that writing poems was about my favorite thing in the world. And I broke the news to my parents, who, God bless them, um, didn't skip a beat and said, so, okay, that's great. There, so Wallace Stevens was uh, an insurance lawyer, the vice president for an insurance company, and William Carlos Williams, another poet you know, was a pediatrician. So do you want to be a doctor or do you want to be a lawyer? And I, uh, I sort of stared at them in space and said, well, I, I will get back to you on that. And I thought, well, I'm squeamish, so I can't possibly uh, be a doctor. And I also didn't really want to be a lawyer because I had seen... Uh, firsthand, my, my father was a lawyer, and I saw the time commitment, which was 50 hours to 60 hours a week minimum, with many weeks being closer to 80 hours. And I just thought, that's that's a hard life. And I, I also, there's no <laughs> there's no guarantee that you can get that life, even if you want it. So I said, well, and I, I did I studied English uh, and worked for a, a not-for-profit uh, publisher not directly out of college, but shortly after, where my, my bosses were um, poets you may have heard of. Uh, Ron Paget was the editorial director of Teachers and Writers Collaborative, and I worked slightly more closely with um, his, his assistant editor, Chris Edgar, who was my co-editor on a magazine called The Hat um, for several years, and then later a web, uh, an iOS app called Ladowich. Um, but the the um, the thing about the thing about being a poet is that many poets do not talk about work, and often, as a a a comfortably off poet mentioned to me, 
often when you scratch an American poet, you will find a trust fund. And I, I do not have a trust fund. And I don't have any uh, particular animus against poets that do, although, although I, I have my um, doubts sometime about uh, inherited wealth and, the, and it's you know, past a certain point, whether it's um, uh, good for anybody involved. Uh, but so, so I, I look for poets who talk about work. I look for poets who talk about labor. I look for poets who talk about um, uh, actively paying attention to class. One of my colleagues at, at Teachers and Writers Collaborative uh, is a poet who's living in Vermont now, um, Gary Lenhart, who published a book with the University of Michigan called The Stamp of Class, which is a really solid analysis of class in 20th century American poetry uh, and is absolutely worth checking out. A little difficult to find, but it was published by the University of Michigan. Um, and then there were, there were poets around, the, uh, around teachers and writers, which I've talked about it three or four times now, and I should say what it is. It, was a, it's an, it is an organization that puts poets and fiction writers and playwrights in the public schools of New York City and the surrounding area to teach kids how to write. And they do writer's residencies that anywhere from 10 to 30 or 40 weeks. Uh, th well, 40 is, I think, longer than the school year. The, the longest, the 10 weeks to the full school year, working with the same kids, um, developing their writing, publishing anthologies of their work in the school so that the, the kids come to understand that what, adults do who publish books is something that they themselves are already on the road to doing. Uh, and it was really uh, valuable and rewarding work, which I wished I could have continued, but I had a son and, um, and New York, uh, this was around the time New York changed from being a place with a lot of rent stabilized and even rent controlled housing to being a place where the market rent is in the, mid 2000s so um, working for a small not-for-profit where you can make a few hundred extra dollars a week by teaching in a in a school somewhere in the city um suddenly became not enough but yeah work i mean we gotta we gotta work is everybody works well everyone except people with trust funds anyway <laughs> well i guess uh, i guess they might argue they work uh, i don't know what that work is but they might pretend to well Another thing that, well, you mentioned um, like teaching kids about uh, how, how how publishing works, and you know that's something else that doesn't really get talked about in poetry usually. That's kind of, I'd say, a, a taboo subject a lot of the time. How publishing works, and something else you you talk about, you write, you wrote a poem about, and actually is um is copyright. And I was wondering too, like like combining that, like your your views on your notes on copyright, let's say with you know, how you view the internet and like, how, how does that come together for you, that, that approach? So uh, we're in a very strange place with copyright right now um, where the rules are understood uh, everywhere and also completely unenforced. Uh, we've, we've gone from a time where poets would be terrified of publishing a book with an image that they didn't absolutely have control over to a, a time where poets are readily reposting uh, printed uh, poems for electronic di dissemination, even after hearing for years and years, uh, like may not be, re no, no part of this broadcast may be reproduced without the express written consent of Major League Baseball and seeing in- I thought in you were gonna say Sterling Matz, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, them too, and, and uh, seeing it in in all kinds of trade press books, uh, no part of this book may be uh, may be included in an electronic retrieval system without the express written permission. So we've got publishers uh, faving and retweeting posts when their poems are when the poems that they publish are being circulated, and I I think there's a a very good reason for that that um that 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 was not anticipated when these uh draconian disclaimers were um aerosol 
spray painted everywhere on everything, uh, which is that poetry has always had a, a, an enormous distribution problem. Um, you publish a poem serially once in a magazine and it, it can live one more time, usually in a book or possibly in an anthology. And those, that's, those are really the three, the three swings at the, at the three bites at the apple, three swings at the, at the fastball that you get with the poem. Uh, but with social media, suddenly that's off. You've got people who are a captive audience who are looking at it at work, who are looking at it at home, who are probably addicted to looking at the phone um, and also are driven to poetry out of their own libidinal needs for fame or beauty or fame or money, which is a bizarre thing to want from poetry or fame, or fame, or fame. And uh, everybody is looking at these things and hoping, looking at these postings of poems and hoping that it will be something that they want to read or it'll be them, or it will be uh, a poem that says something that they wish would be said. And uh, you're not quite at the, at the stage of people making mixtapes and handing them to each other, although I, I get several emails um, where the word mixtape uh, is applied to a selection of poem, a mini anthology of poems. Um, but you are getting to this, this stage of actual distribution, of actual affinity distribution of poems where people are like, this is something I really liked and I want you to see. Um, and that's not, and it's not something that's just happening between uh, classes in a high school. That's happening like out on the open internet all the time, every day. Uh, and for a while, there were, there were about, I, I counted about 30 or 40 people who were posting poems every couple of days. I think it's slowed down. I think there may be 10 or 15 people who are posting poems pretty regularly. Um, and long may they wave, because it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's um, I don't think it's the solution to the problem of distribution in poetry and the problem of circulation. Like you have, you have the music industry, which can commandeer almost all of the radio spectrum in order to um, shovel music out to people and sell ads to hear the music. And then the familiarity, hearing a song seven times, it's something that you remember and think that perhaps you would want to buy. Um, this, right as that whole system is falling apart and there's no more actual buying of music and there's no more distribution system for the music industry and probably eventually even for the book industry although the book industry keeps coming back somehow um while that's happening suddenly you get this opening and you have this appetite and this um behavioral cycle built up with people where they know to go look at something and and see hear what's playing see what's what's going on to have poetry actually insert itself into that um, neural pathway for people right now, it's, uh, it's, it's wild. And it, it may have something to do with, with Instagram. Um, Instagram seems to me a lot like um, Ezra Pound's uh, ideographic conception of poetry, where you, see, you perceive, perceive the meaning all in a flash, which I think is probably a mistake and probably not, not true. But it is it is the way you you perceive pictorially on Instagram. Um, you do take it all in fairly quickly without any kind of narrative development or um, consecutivity. Right. I, I ramble. I rambled there. <laughs> no, it's cool. That's honestly the whole point of podcasting is to just have rambles. So I was going to ask though, um, like, so you talked about like the sharing of poems on on social media and you know you've you've had your poems shared on social media like what's that like especially since your poems do deal with sharing poems on social media <laughs> uh yeah it's uh, it's really nice actually the endorphin thing is real um uh, and when somebody has seen something in a poem that they say hey this is something you might like to their circle of friends who i don't have any other contact with like a finance writer or uh uh, shipping uh, reporter, um, 
just different people who are not necessarily in the poetry circulation system who find the poems either because I send them to them or, uh, or they, they found them. Uh, the C-SPAN producer, uh, just, uh, it's a, it's nice for me. The, for me, I have a, I have a longstanding concern with the social, uh, aspect of poetry and the diminishing returns of poetry really only going back to the same institutions and the same styles and the same tropes and the same uh, prosody always and the same readers. And, the, the, and there's a, a, a gatekeeping, I mean, the gatekeeping problem of poetry is famous and there's, there's, a, there's a good side, I think, to the gatekeeping aspect of poetry, which is that there are people who really have read more than I will ever read, and I try and read everything, but there are people who have read two, three, five times as much, who just can say, oh, that, that does a thing that hasn't been done, or that does a thing that you might be interested in, or it's a thing, uh, there's, a, there's an aspect of that that, that um, has languished for a long time, and this brings it back in an interesting way, or this is something that's totally new. So to have gatekeepers, I'm, I, I'm a little bit ambivalent about, because I feel like there's a control aspect and a rentier aspect. Um, I mean, for example, you don't want somebody to be the poetry editor of a magazine for 30 years. You're going to get into a situation where they're clearly extracting rents one way or another from um, various constituencies. But, you, you know, you do also value the expert, like the real knowledge uh, and the real continuity of, of interest. Um, so, I mean, uh, in, in conclusion, poetry is a land of contrast. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Like, I go back and forth with that, like with respect to, to agents, you know, they're on the one hand, it's clearly their job to just peddle access, essentially. But on the other hand, they do, there is that they, you know, it is useful to have someone to be able to like explain to you how the whole land landscape of you know literature works because it is very opaque, and I can see like why you'd want like why it's helpful that for writers to have someone to help guide them through these various systems. So well, I, you, I totally understand that. You you were talking with Sarah in the in the um, in that episode about uh, the or Sarah was talking with you about the Wiley Agency and, and poets and I, I this is actually fascinating to me. There, I, I still don't I understand poets having a speaking agency because um, there's money. Well, and, and there there are venues that want that the poets have a have a a good that the um, that. That the customer that there is a customer there's an, a, an intermediary that they want they want to have a, a poet who can come and light up a room and perform being a poet and perform that kind of expertise and that kind of special magical person quality that people will pay to see the way people pay to see uh professional athletes or to hear a you know a recording artist who they have all their albums of and, and i get that but but i don't because I just I the situation in which a poet negotiates an advance that's worth an agent's time is very mysterious to me. I mean, poetry used to be in the pre-Rupi Carr days, which were also, I guess, the Rod McEwen days. Uh, but but the idea of selling seven thousand copies of a book of poems was extraordinary. I mean, that was. The figure that I heard in the early '90s was you, you, the the upper reaches for a book of poems in America was about seven thousand copies, and coincidentally, in England, which is a country of a fractional size, the upper upper reaches for a book of poems is also about seven thousand copies, and then for Ireland, which is a fractional size of the UK, um, it was also about seven thousand copies. So you would. So you, there would be, I forget the source for this remark, and I should probably find it before um, committing it to uh, the electrons. But uh, the, the idea was you could count on Seamus Heaney to sell 21,000 copies of a book of poems because he'd hit the 7,000 mark in all three of those jurisdictions. Um, but, but then you have someone like Rupi Carr who sells, I, I still don't really understand the numbers involved. Um, and I don't particularly, I don't, don't have anything... Um, 
negative to say about Rupi Carr. It's it's not a reproducible result, but it's uh, it's fascinating, and I, I just it, I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. I think it's worth worth looking at and figuring out exactly what's going on there. Yeah, you could say that. You could say that publishing is a shell game. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, you could. Yeah, you could. Um, and I think I think the publishers. Uh, <laughs> I don't think many publishers would disagree with you. I, I think that I, the <sighs> the the sort of long tail um, dream that there are books that will just keep selling into the into the dis- that that the books that sell a huge yeah, well, quantity. Go ahead. I was just going to say. Well, I think I think for the Wiley Agency, those poets. I think I was talking about this with. Oh gosh, um, maybe Sarah. But the idea that these poets, poets. Oh, actually, I think it was Trent. More these poets are more of a long-term bet. They're trying to, you know, buy someone's career early. It's like, well, to do a baseball analogy, it's like you know, you you want the young player who's like you know, twenty-two and has like you know, fifteen more years of good baseball ahead of him. I think that's their aim here. I've heard it said that that was how. Billy Collins, that Billy Collins had an agent who said, you're good, we can do something with this. And he became Billy Collins. And Billy Collins is um, intermittently recognizably a New York school poet in the model of Paul Violi uh, or Tony Toll. And, th- and then in, in another, from another angle, which is the angle everybody sees now, he's also this very clearly radio-friendly unit shifter who does a thing that people are not threatened by, and that also they, they get the references, and also there's wit. Um, the, the personality is all over the place sometimes, and I don't, I don't always know what he's trying to do, but I, I, I see why an agent said, yes, let's do this, and it worked. Um, but I, 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 don't, I, I, I see your point about it possibly being a kind of growth market opportunity for agents, but what a weird... Um, what a weird gamble. I mean, poetry is such a long shot under any circumstances. Um, it's just, it's such a, such a strange business. The, the, the most famous poet I ever saw, uh, was obviously Allen Ginsberg, who gave a reading, uh, that I saw at Columbia University where people were climbing in the windows of the, of the, the, uh, the lounge where he was reading just to hear him and to be near him. Um, and it, it was, a, it's a, it's very fluky poetry. Um, Ellen was simultaneously extremely left-wing and also one of the canniest business people I ever saw um, in terms of uh, developing the audience and uh, flogging the merchandise and just the mystique. Uh, I, I saw him obviously. Gosh, must have been thirty-five years after he had his breakthrough and, and got everybody's attention everywhere. Uh, but that doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> that, that's not a you know. It's it's a great gamble if it pays off, but the odds are the odds on any particular bet are pretty long. For, for an agency as powerful as the Wiley agency, you have to suspect that they're like, well, this person's talented, like, like with Billy Collins, this person's talented, plus our institutional connections and money, we can probably churn out at least one of these people into a, a generational poet that everyone has to read. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Interesting. I, what I, was, uh, I was starting to review books at around the time the Best American Poetry Series started. And I can remember uh, the gossip that at the time when John Ashbery was asked to edit the first volume, he, he registered an objection to the title. He said, couldn't we just say very good poems or, or some poems that I noticed? Uh, but the marketing value of saying best, you know, it, it creates its own momentum. Um, there are oh. separate... Go ahead. I just wanted to say, I wanted to, this seems like a good spot to ask this. I wanted to ask, like, you know, I notice on Twitter you do threads at the books you're reading, and you read literally, like, a book every day or a book every other day of poetry. And I just wanted to ask, like, you know, like, I just wanted to ask about that. You cut out there when you said you wanted to ask. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to ask about, you know, how, 
like how you treat poetry, I guess, in that way. So um, you said po- poetry is, is comic books for smart people. I, that's how I look at it. I, I treat I, I see people reading. Uh, yeah, I just want, sorry, I, not, not to interrupt. I just want to say that that is the fact that I can tell that's like, that is why I came up with that t- tweet is because I was paying attention to your, your stuff. Yeah, I mean, you see people on the subway reading, uh, or you see people anywhere reading comic books. And if you see them two or three times, they're reading different comic books. I mean, you can read a book of poems. I think people have the idea from high school college that poetry has to be read slowly and you have to be prepared to write uh, an essay question a test question on any particular poem that you read but really you just if the poems are really good they will most likely slow you down and make you pay attention to every word and every syllable that way but for the most part even poems that are pretty good you can read quickly and get an idea of what the poet's doing uh most of the time uh with, without spending days and days on a book, uh, I, 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 my commute is about an hour. I can usually read a book of poems on the commute in the morning. And uh, if I'm not exhausted from work, I can read another one on the way home. Um, and then once I'm home, I, 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 I just want to goof off. But um, no, I, I, I think poetry should be read quickly. And I think, uh, I mean, I think it, it doesn't respond badly to being read quickly anyway. And if there's something that you see and you feel as you're reading, or if you notice that you're skimming past the meaning of what you're reading, um, you will slow down and, and visualize and hear and feel um, everything that, that is there to be felt and heard and seen. Yeah, and I think... Um... Like that kind of approach Like you mentioned earlier that uh, Billy Collins just speaks and tends to speak in references that people get. And I think you tend to, you know, you've talked about like bread and family and work and, you know, well, copyright law, that's a bit, <laughs> that's a bit different. But you, you generally, I think, speak in references that are very familiar to people, but maybe not familiar to poetry. I u- used to work for the poet Kenneth Koch. I was his assistant. And his poem sometimes it seemed to me that he was writing in about concepts and in words that would be translatable to you know the lobe library of classic greek and classic roman i I, I said you know ken some of these poems they could be like in the lobe library for uh, of of english poetry for mosquitoes eight billion years from now because they're they're absolutely intelligible and interpretable and everything is is extremely clear he really hated obscurity he thought um which he thought obscurity in poetry was uh a ripoff um and he also was uh one of the biggest defenders of say the work of gertrude stein so i mean he had he had he held contradictory concepts in mind all the time and he didn't see he didn't see certain things as unclear he saw he was able to get his head around say the way stein um was describing to say that's not obscure at all um and sometimes uh she's she's going off on private references but um but you can you can follow does does that make sense yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't obscure to him is what you're saying. But I also want to yeah, say too... Uh, oh, well, I, I, I like the sound of language. Kenneth Koch liked the sound of language too. And there is a kind of poetry that gets carried away with the sound of the words uh, and is not um, strictly about uh, relating a, an emotionally uh, devastating scene although kenneth wrote plenty of those poems and I'm, I, I keep trying to and i don't think i've got there ever but one of these days um but but there is also there is also the poetry of the sound of words um the, the materiality of language was a big subject in the for poetry in the 50s and 60s and went away for a while and the language poets brought it back in the 70s uh, and 80s in a different way that 
very, very, to varying degrees, uh, was applied to um, certain, mostly Marxist philosophers. Um, and I, I don't know how much I buy the the theoretical framework for it, but I do. Uh, I, I did enjoy the critique and in, in, and the and the snarling wit, say, in some of Bruce Andrews' poems. And in some of the poets who who came after the language poets, like Kevin Davies, who I wrote about for the Nation once, uh, who uh, absolutely um, focus on both the sound and the meaning, and uh, and also not succumbing to talking about concepts in a in a way that could be called patronizing or or infantilizing in any sense. Uh, and I, that's something I aspire to. And that's something that's been a general, I think, improvement in poetry in the last 20 years is that there's, um, there's more of a space for poetry that, that is not infantilizing and not patronizing uh, that, that talks to a reader as if, uh, as if it's clear that everybody involved is a grown up and has, has dealt with grown up problems. Right. And another thing too, like, in addition to maybe the sounds and uh, the references that I think maybe you have in common with, say, Kenneth Koch, is um, use a lot of there's a lot of humor in your poems. Like you know, there, you, there's a moment I think it's in the poem Shell Game where you like recount your son watching uh, cup stacking videos on YouTube. Yeah, he really did that. So. No, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Uh, Ron Paget who, as I say, was it my, my boss at, at Teachers and Writers, was talking, was it, was it Ron? Somebody was talking to me lately about the moment in um, Coleridge. Oh, no, it's in, it's in Ron Padgett's new book, um, which I happen to have right here. Where did I put it? It's a book, it's a collaboration with the, um, with the painter Trevor Winkfield, and it's published by Cuneiform Press. It's called Encore with Rectangle and Philosophy. And I'll find the line, which is talks about the moment when stuff that was literally in front of the poet ends up in the poem for the first time. And I'm going to read to you from the amazing poet Ron Paget, who coincidentally with me and with the poet Justin Jamail uh, advises the Kenneth Koch Literary Estate. So I see Ron from time to time. But he says... Coleridge sat alone under a lime tree, missing his friends, and wrote about it. A bird flew past, electrifying, the first time that something happened during the writing of a poem and got included. Okay, first a bat goes by, and then a bee is singing, and then the bird, a rook, now a dim speck, now vanishing in light. The bat and the bee I forgot, but that bird is bang on. Anyway, the... Um, the, the, y y I, I, if, if there's anything funny in my poems, I'm amazed because I'm, I'm really not a funny person. Um, so thank you for saying that. Uh, I, think, I think you're lying. I think you're just being honest. <laughs> you're, you're cheering me up. No, I'm, I'm deeply unfunny. Actually, almost all men are deeply unfunny. There's been a mistaken premise, uh, that comedy is, is by men, but actually in my experience, women are much much funnier than men. Um, and if men say something funny, um, two, two out of three times they heard a woman say it first um, and just are taking the credit. So if there's something funny in my book, I probably stole it from some funny woman I happened to be near at the time. But, um, but that, that moment of, of being available to what's going on right now and unfolding into the, into the poem can be great or it can be tedious uh, and sometimes it works out I, I think it works out pretty well for ron and the uh, jury's out on me no you definitely engage in a similar thing like repeatedly through the book of just including you know little moments from your life or little moments that you you observe and another thing too that you end the book with like um just i think it's a, a list of new words between like i don't know let me see 1939 and 1945 and i guess too that that it, that would extend to that so uh uh i have a 
mortal terror of uh, global conflict. Um, and I, in a little, in a, th th that poem is a little bit my reassuring myself that even though everything will probably end in the next war, we'll get a lot of crazy words out of it um, if it lasts more than eight minutes. Um, and that, that was a list in one of the Webster's dictionaries. Um, and I had great, great anxiety about including, it's a found poem, including um, that work in the book. And the, the party for the book was actually in the home of a, a copyright attorney um, who said, no, actually, who reassured me the night before the price, like, we have a problem. And she said, no, actually, you can't copyright a list of words. It's just a list. Um, somebody else may have compiled it, but it's really only a list of words. And I said, well, but any text could be considered a list of words. And she said, no, actually, it can't. It can't. It's, it's it, the text with punctuation and, and, and sentences is not really a list of words. I said, oh. So um, what, what do you make of that list? Do you have favorite words from it? I'd say I more like just the I liked like I liked it as a way to close the book, I guess. Thank you. I, I, my, I have the idiosyncratic um, habit of reading poetry books backwards. Um, and I, I became aware uh, as I was putting this book together that I was not the only person who did that. And I thought, well, how can I, um, I, I also am someone who, when I, when I see a list in something, I invariably skip it. I'm like, give me a break. That's a list. Uh, but this one list that I found, I thought, well, Jesus, look at these words. Um, and there, there is actually a, a book that I would like to, um, would like to publish now that I know that lists of words can't be copyrighted. Um, is a, a book of the lists that certain writers I admire, if they didn't invent the words, they're the first person to take them into print. Um, is the the words that Coleridge contributed to the language, the words that John Lilly contributed to the language. Uh, just um they're bafflingly great um so to put either either it's uh an amuse-bouche for the rest of the book if you read it first um your your brain is is um charged up to be attentive to different kinds of words and if you read it last it's a sort of oh god <laughs> this this could all happen all over again um and these these uh, you know, Hassenpfeffer obviously predates World War II, but as an American um, term, as something that you would hear about here, to have that enter the language then, who knows what, what will enter the language the next time around um, and what that conflict will be. I, I don't know if geopolitical conflict is really what we get next. Um, I feel oh, as though everybody... Oh, uh, I, I said, so, so the, there were all these words from this last intense geopolitical conflict that was uh, the preoccupation for everybody in the world for six years. Um, and we've, we've been sort of spared that with all these little permanent wars all over the place. But I, it feels as though the next conflict is also going to be totalizing. And I don't I, I wonder what, what that's going to do to the language, and I wonder how people will um, negotiate it. Well, you could say we lived quietly during the war. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> you could, but should someone say that? Uh, well, I, 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 think, I think that's something you say if you believe that you know, there is hay to be made rather than like, actually, like, what, what, are we, what are we really going to do? Um, I, I feel like that's kind of a that's kind of the cynical uh, approach that the cynical art of of the last couple decades has encouraged, and I I think the problems are really much too serious to um, to pretend about it and to think uh, we can bluff and talk our way through this. I I, I don't I don't think it's going to work that way. Um, I, and I don't think um, pressing guilt buttons or pressing apology buttons uh, or seeking, uh, seeking rents or seeking niches is going to work. I, I, I think we're facing problems that are going to affect everybody. And we're already seeing 
um, really unforgivably horrible uh, approaches to these problems, to the problems of global warming and global immiseration and migration uh, in the form of, of camps. Uh, and we don't, we don't even have to say what we did during the war. We're, this is it. We're doing it. And for now, I'm going to my job, and I haven't figured out a way to register um, my horror and my absolute non-compliance and non-agreement with the, the approach that uh, these elected officials are, are putting in place. And, I mean, as is pointed out, there is continuity with what the previous administration did. And I also noticed that there was not really any significant protest about what the previous administration did. Yeah, so, one, of, one of my favorite pastimes is to uh, name search or at like uh, search tweets from famous poets who, who say they're radical and then search the word Obama and see what they had to say about Obama in like 2012. I mean, you know, if you weren't completely disappointed and frustrated with his inability to deal with, with, uh, with legislative gridlock, um, and if you weren't completely sickened by the, the extrajudicial drone strikes, and if you weren't confused and just absolutely mind-boggled by the immigration policy and the deportations, um, I don't... I don't you know, I don't, I don't think that's, that's a sign of being a good team player. I think that's a sign of not paying attention um, or of not really um, having a, a, a principled interest in, in what was going on. It's, it's being, being a fan of a team rather than like having a, an idea of how it's supposed to work. And none of those things that I mentioned uh, were satisfactory. Um, but the, the acquiescing to judi judicial... Uh, not acquiescing to the, to the legislative opposition and not really constantly trying to seek bipartisan support for things that were never, ever going to be acknowledged for whatever reason, whether it was straight up institutional American racism or whether it was opposition to policies themselves or whether it was a lovely cocktail of both. Um, just not, it's just a frustrating eight years. Um, and I, I saw the poets being excited about it and I wasn't invited to participate in any of those, those events. That's fine because, because I think you always have to wait and see with any particular politician. And also, you know, electoral politics. Um, even the elected politicians say the change really happens when people get out and make it happen. And I think there's a dot, dot, dot there that the elected politicians who say that um, don't really want to be followed out to where it ends. Like I say, like I've said 12 times, I, I go to work and I, I do my job and I um, participate in the system. Uh, but I, I do think things could be organized better. Yeah. And I think, I think like, um, like you're saying, the war is already here. And I think, uh, you know, that comes through at various moments because, you know, you like I said, you tend to write more about, you know, everyday life and references. And so, you know, it could, the, that that comes through in the poems, the way the, the fact that we live in a society. So, you know, you, you write things like, um, you know, the timeline misdemeanors as evidence of personal development, a citizenship of safely catchable, controllable criminals or um, uh, it will do no. It will do no good to put these devices in the hands of children if their parents have no time to read along and talk with them. And, you know, I think... Oh, go on. Oh, uh, yeah, no, te teaching in, in school, teaching in elementary and middle and high schools in the New York area and seeing that the kids who were clearly having time with their families to talk about what they did in school were in one place and the kids who, whose parents had no time to talk to them, it's harder. Um, and my, my, my big fear in that, in that poem is, uh, is probably going to be considered a tin hat fear, which is, um, uh, the destruction of, of books and the destruction of, um, all of this, this storehouse of knowledge and error and opinion that we've gathered. Um, there's a wonderful book by, uh, I think it's South America, 
a scholar named Fernando Baez, called the history of the destruction of books, which I recommend um, from Alexandria to the book burnings of the Third Reich and beyond. Um, a, a, an ongoing and abiding concern for me is how do we make sure that the books make it? Um, and that, well, you know, have you have you heard about the the new thing that Amazon's trying to do with Audible? Um, no, I think they're trying to do a thing where the text you can do an option so the text will slowly scroll by on screen as you're listening to the audiobook and obviously that's a that's a copyright violation because they audible is just the audiobook you don't get the physical book because of again copyright law and i think and i think maybe we're seeing uh you know i think some of the biggest threats to books are probably these corporations like like especially amazon but uh so the the notes on copyright i was i was um I was writing for the nation some uh, when I was working on that. And there was a conference at the new school on privacy and copyright. And um, this is actually the first time I, I heard of uh, Glenn Greenwald uh, was there. This is, this is in advance of Snowden and those revelations, but he was basically making reference to them saying, you don't understand. Everything is being uh, monitored. And he wouldn't say specifically how or why. And he was like, this guy's nuts. <laughs> this guy's this guy's terrible. This guy's nuts. But um, shortly, I, I mean, I, I guess that was 2012. So it wasn't much later that um, Snowden came forward, um, and uh, he may have already tipped people off at this point. Um, but the 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 issue that I was, and I'm not a I'm not an attorney. I'm not a copyright attorney. I'm not a patent attorney. I'm not a, a trademark attorney. Uh, but the issue that struck me over and over in all the reading that I did for this piece, which never existed except in the form of these notes, was the, um, the Disney extensions, the Sonny Bono extensions of copyright farther and farther into the future and the, um, the closing off of the public domain and texts not actually um, lapsing and becoming available um, for longer and longer periods of time just struck me as uh, there, are th there are probably three or four things in the book um, with this. I worry a little bit that it's a tin hat concern um, that uh, just ideas themselves will be locked up and unusable and that, that uh, attorneys will send letters to people if they try and recombine existing ideas. An early cover of the, of the book that we ended up not using uh, the designer, Jeff Clark, put together a very beautiful image of um, Wonder Woman and Superman uh, with, comic, with comic balloons coming from their mouths, one saying Jordan Davis, the other saying Shell Game. And it was a purple Superman and an orange, I think an orange Wonder Woman. Um, but it was very, very clearly a copyright violation uh, or a trademark violation of an image that is absolutely in use. And... And an attorney I am related to, my father said, um, that, that not only will they will they sue you for the the value for the value of the image, but they'll, they'll charge you that image for every copy that's printed. So, so I, rather than bankrupt um, Rod Smith and and Air and Edge Books and Jeff Clark, who's a wonderful designer, and myself and my family and everybody who knows me, I said maybe we should do a different cover and. Um, we got we got pretty lucky. I think Jeff's design, the um, the swapped heads, uh, turned out pretty well. But so, copyright. Um, I want to ask too, like, because um, like Flarf was happening, like in the that was a, that was like a two thousands era thing. And one of the things that was going on then was that was when like internet piracy and like torrenting was really huge. Was that ever? Did you ever encounter that? The poet Tim Davis uh, was was uh, did settle, I believe, with um, poet and photographer Tim Davis did, I think, end up settling with the Recording Industry Association of America for uh, some unspecified. You may want to talk to Tim, who's uh, an amazing photographer, an amazing poet. His book American Whatever uh, from Edge Books and his book Dailies from Edge Books are two 
two of the best books of the OOs. Um, so yeah, I, I was, it was adjacent uh, to me, but I did not get caught in the crossfire. Um, we were aware of that as, a, as an ongoing concern, and there was a slight outlaw feeling. I mean, it did contribute to the outlaw feeling of stealing text um, along with stealing time. Don't don't worry about your tin hat conspiracies because lately I've been living, imagining the hell world of uh, Facebook announced they're going to do like a cryptocurrency called Libra. So I'm imagining a world where suddenly we now have to do critical support for Bitcoin in in the face of the Facebook Libra monster. It's a nightmare. I yeah I, I was I was lucky. I um, I tried to sign up for Facebook when they were only taking people with EDU addresses, and they they rejected my application, and I never looked back. So I missed the whole thing. All of my friends disappeared into Facebook, and I spent several years alone in the desert. But on the plus side, uh, this all sort of runs down my back. I have so no idea what. What were you doing does. on the internet between, say, the blogs and Facebook, and now? That that is a that is a story for another day. <laughs>